Hello and welcome to Various Things. My name is Gary Lama. Today we're talking with Ed Edge. Ed has built a business helping the economically poor people in the city of Richmond by running a variety of non-profit organizations. And he generally does this by funding them either out of pocket from his pay as a paramedic or through for-profit ventures such as Cafe Verde, a series of vegan food trucks, or a bike company he ran called Cute Bikes. Because of length, we've broken these interviews up into five parts. This is part one. Enjoy. Alright, uh, my name is Ed Edge. I am uh, a doer of, of things. I, I like to uh, get a, you know my heartstrings pulled in certain directions, and then I typically start a couple nonprofits uh, in whatever uh, whatever causes that are I'm feeling into that year. So that's what I do for a living. Cool. So this is a. Have you found it to be a yearly thing? I, I think that uh, my nonprofits seem to, to last about two years. Okay. They get they they do their deed, and either they continue without me, or if I feel like the need is met and we can't grow anymore, or if I really just come in contact with another need that I think I can better serve, then I'll close that one down and go somewhere else. The general lifespan of an EdEdge uh, nonprofit is about two years. Wow, that's really precise. I mean, not not like not like you're saying it precisely, but that, that's really cool that you're uh, you kind of have that um, that strength because at a certain level, that's a kind of a um, understanding of the way things cycle. Well. At the at the three year mark, you need to establish. Okay, is this thing self sufficient? Mm-hmm. Um, I think first, well, actually, first you have to think. You have to see, uh, is this thing successful? We we have we came in for a purpose. Uh, did we meet the purpose? If not, where are we deficient? And if that purpose is met. Uh, is this thing sustainable enough to where it can continue to meet that need from here on out or so on and so forth. So usually the first year is a very, uh, a lot of things happen. Like the most exponential growth will happen in the first year. And then the second year is just maintaining. Still there's some growth, but you're more accomplishing your need at, at some sort of level of efficiency. If you haven't gotten that level of efficiency by the second year, you need to either, Stop it, like, yeah, drastically change the approach, or it just wasn't a good idea. It was like one of those things that's good on paper, just not in practice. And how hard is that for you? Um, have you have you faced uh, things in your projects where you've had to address something that you had like a emotional attachment to that you really wanted to succeed, and just had to say, "Hey, this isn't working," and pull out? Yes. Or? <laughs> yes. I'm I'm on my ninth and tenth uh, companies right now. I currently own two companies. It's number nine, number ten. Uh, so the first eight were man. The first eight, I think I have a fifty fifty percent, like a fifty percent success rate with them. Half of them are still around without me, and half of them are non-existent. Um, 
Those are pretty good ratios, I actually. So. <laughs> I think so. I, not not to toot my own horn, but I think I can go to business school. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Well, I, I, I took idea. some I took some business classes, and it it nine out of ten failure is typical. So fifty percent success rate. That's that's this pretty good. The nonprofit status. This is in the nonprofit world, though. So I think. Oh yeah, uh, it might be different. It might be different because it's a cause. Okay. It's it, it generally it just even if your cause is saving baby starlings that get kicked out of nests too early, I think you can find enough. Like it's no, it's not a real problem to me to find people that are really into that cause, and if not, just finding people that have bleeding hearts, educating them on the cause, and then they typically get on board. So. It's, I guess it's a little different than a regular company because it's, it's hard to get other people on the cause of generating money for yourself. Yeah, or for a specific <laughs> product that might be in a certain stage of its evolution cycle or something like that. Right. But I'd say, uh, I'd say yeah, we got a, a fairly decent success rate. Uh, I'm not – I don't judge. Even I'd say some of the, some of the companies that I've had to let go – I wouldn't call them a failure. I just, it's one of those things that's kind of good in practice, just uh, good in theory, just not in practice. For instance, uh, my bicycle company that built bikes for poor people, we built over a thousand bikes. Where it was going wrong is that we were building high quality bikes, you know, like uh, bikes that would cost on the manufacturing and $350, which would retail for about, you know, $800. Yeah. So, but at the end, so we spent whatever 300 times a thousand is, uh, but at the end of the day, you can't make people ride a bike. You can give them the bike. You can you can say, hey, this is what's going to get you to work from now on. It'll save you money on the metro. It'll get you healthier. But you can't essentially make them ride it. So in the the United States, there are a ton of these bikes riding, rolling around that you know probably aren't getting used. So uh, our goal was to get bikes to poor people. Our follow-up goal should have been getting them to ride them, but we didn't do that. So thus we just, I think we wasted a lot of money. The second part there seems like a very difficult thing to do. Um, Cause bikes being sports equipment, like technically there's a thing with Americans that we like to buy it and not really use it. You know, there's probably like a million Nordic tracks sitting around <laughs> kind of unused. Cause at least in the United Absolutely. States, it's been relegated Absolutely. to that idea of like, I think people buy bikes on an idealistic notion, you know, for the most part, but you know, you go to another country and it's, it's not like that at all. It's not sports equipment, it's transportation. So it sounds like what you were hoping is you could, you could swing people into that, um, that view of bicycle as actual transportation rather than here's something to do on a Saturday. And this is one of my earlier companies. I was very ignorant to uh, how I look at things. I wasn't looking at things from someone else's point of view. I was looking at it from, from my point of view. Hey, if I had a bike that I designed that was the colors I wanted, was lightweight, was attractive and cute and all that jazz, I would love to ride it if someone gave it to me. I'd ride it every day. And was this uh, the Cute Bikes company? Uh, this was so cute. So cute bikes was a for-profit. Uh, Price cycles was the non-profit. So cute bikes made profit, and then the profit siphoned into um, to Christ cycles. 
Oh, so, okay. So I, uh, I don't live off my companies ever. I don't see a dime. I've never taken a single dime from any of the companies because I'm a, uh, a flight paramedic, and that's what pays my bills. A flight uh, paramedic? Yes, I fly in a helicopter and get people that have been shot and stuff. So are you are you at MCV? Um, no, I'm with um, with the army actually. I fly in a big black helicopter you see around here now and then. The Blackhawk. Yep. Wow, I did not know. I knew I, you were a paramedic, but I didn't realize you were a flight paramedic. Wow, that's. So you see some grisly stuff. I do, unfortunately. And uh, uh, so my respite from that hecticness is uh, creating companies and helping people through there. But uh, kind of the most successful thing to do as a nonprofit is to, A, right off the bat, secure funding. Okay. And... I, I don't know a lot of rich people. I myself am not rich. Uh, I'm a very poor civil servant. I know other very poor civil servants. So uh, being able to fundraise and get money would just take up all of my time. If, yeah. If I was to start a nonprofit that way. So what I typically do is I have a for-profit, uh-huh. which makes money, and then I have a nonprofit, which then the money gets dumped into. So you always have a pair of those, like that kind of pair relationship? This is, as of the last five years, I've realized this is the most feasible thing to do. Okay. Um, because I, to, before then, I was just giving all my money away because my rent is dirt cheap. I don't have any things that I need to pay for. Uh, so I can live off you know, a couple hundred bucks a month and all of my other income would go towards the nonprofit. Which was cool, fine, totally good, but it would it would grossly limit. If I had a really good idea for a nonprofit, it would really limit its growth. Um, so I found that pairing it up with a for-profit is probably the, the easiest way to to rule. And that concludes part one of our interview with Ed Edge. You can find all of our episodes at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded March 24th, 2014. things for part two of our five-part interview with Ed Edge. Enjoy. So do you, do you incorporate these as 501c3s or do you just operate them as just money loss businesses? Cool. Hey, that's a great question. Um, and so there's always this there's always this struggle um, because in the U.S. you can have a corporation, a company, whatever, that loses money for three years. Right. Yeah, and the S-Corp, it's allowed to, yeah. It's allowed to be a money pit for three years. So if I'm not 100% on a nonprofit, if I'm like, you know what, this might be feasible, it might not, it's got a lot of moving parts, let's just see how it goes, I'm going to start out as an S-Corp. 
and because the nonprofit takes about fifteen hundred dollars to get. I was like, why spend money on that if we don't know if it's going to live that long? Right. Um, and so after the first year, you can tell if this thing has um, has potential. If it has potential, we'll get the five hundred one c three. If not, then we'll. I might ride off another year, like ride it out another year to see how it goes. Yeah. Um, and at that at that point, we're either okay, we're going to get the five hundred one c three and pass this on to someone else, or I will. Uh, close it out and start something else. But that's a great question because I see a lot of people getting hung up on the 501c3 paperwork and I always tell people, if you have an idea, you can worry about that later on. I think it's for legitimacy purposes. You know, like I think people want to have that like... Well, if you are taking donations, if your whole whole purpose, like your whole funding is coming from donations, then corporations will only donate to five one two threes and people generally want to write that off from their taxes. Yeah. So they only want to get to five one two threes. But if you're using your own money and you just have them as an S corp, you can that that's that's writing off on your taxes. Your S corp lost money, thus you lost money, thus you're not getting taxed on that. So I generally don't. I get taxed off the yin yang. I don't give a crap about that. <laughs> I love paying taxes because cool. in my head. A small portion of the tax taxes I pay go towards uh, helping poor people. Mm. So I I don't give a crap about that. But um, if you were to have an idea and you were the you know the sole funder and you're the owner of the the S corp, you'd be covered tax wise because your S corp would be losing money. So. Huh. Oh well. So these businesses that you, uh, what was your first what was your first business that you got into? Uh, the first nonprofit was Christ Cycles. The first business was uh, being a booking agent for bands when I was in high school. <laughs> uh, and it was funny because I would, I would like, help out at this venue. Uh-huh. Up, and I, all, I, all I would hear is uh, bands just complaining about they hate their booking agent, how you know, the booking agent is taking 15%. Right. So I, emailed, I emailed my favorite bands. I made some fake email. Uh, got my own phone line and whatnot. Got a fax line. And I, this is totally out of boredom. I emailed my favorite bands. I said, "Hey, uh, if you're unhappy with your booking agent, I will book your first two two uh, tours for free, and then we'll take you know five percent as opposed to fifteen percent." Um, I was fifteen, mind you, uh, but I, I realized that like booking just entailed a lot of emails. So it doesn't really matter. You just if you email the venues after you get routing, so on and so forth, it's really to care of itself. This was back in two thousand one, so things may have changed since then, but uh it was actually really successful. A couple of my bands were really big and <laughs> I I you know spent all my time outside of high school booking bands. It was that was my first entrance into owning stuff something. And did did you sell that off to somebody, or did, did you just no? I so we, I worked out to where I would uh, sell bands off, like if uh, a different booking agent, like I would get like five percent, or normal booking agent get fifteen to twenty, and as okay. a fifteen year old, five dollars is a lot. So five yeah. percent of whatever their you know their thousand dollar night guarantee, I was stoked on. But um, if a band was getting too big. I would pass them off to other agents for a small fee. So, okay. 
it was it was asinine that I did that, and that, um, I think that was, that's what lit the fire under. Like, hey, being your own boss is fun. <laughs> and so, how did you go? When did you get into being a paramedic? Um, I, th- I graduated high school early. Got got my paramedic um, shortly after. Had to lie about my age on that one. Wow. Uh, yeah, I graduated like sixteen. You have to be eighteen to get to the paramedic school. I was like, yeah, sure, I'm eighteen, and uh, it's in the work. I don't think I don't think most people realize being a like on an ambulance you have EMTs and then you have a paramedic and right. an EMT is not a paramedic a paramedic is a, is a much higher level of certification and they can actually make calls about vitals and things like this and direct the ambulance to the nearest hospital and this kind of thing whereas the EMT is kind of more of a helper person is that correct yeah yeah my EMT um he refers to himself as a driver. Uh, okay. That's primarily what his job is. Now, they're, they're trained well beyond that, but my personal partner likes to call himself a driver. Yeah, paramedics can give meds, they can diagnose, and they can, uh, they can do all the cool stuff like give anesthesia and innovate people and do chest tubes and stuff like that. So, um, as a flight paramedic, I, 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 I'm able to do way more than people realize. But it's primarily just with heart and lung emergencies. If your appendix bursts, I'm just gonna give you tons of pain meds. That's that's the extent of it. So pretty much any heart and lung emergency, I can do the same as a doctor can do. But outside of that, uh, I'm, if you have a cold, I am no use. So, and you've been doing that since when? Um, I've been doing it since 2004. Okay, and and you've been on the flight. Were you on the flight the whole time, or is that something? No, you've got to. So the flight paramedic is like a higher echelon of in the paramedic world, in the medical world. Uh, they take like the best of the best. So you have to be a paramedic in a very urban setting for like five or six years. And I, I've worked in a number of different cities. Richmond being one of them. Uh, Newport News, Fredericksburg, Charlottesville, Newport News, uh, Petersburg. Uh, and so after doing my time on the ground, I was able to make a case for myself to get onto the, the helicopter. And so as a, you, so you're flying with the army now. What I fly is, with the army. Well, go ahead. What do they do domestically with, with the flight? Like, uh, are you picking up like just normal civilians? Yes. Um, we do what normal people can't. So if you get stuck on a mountain somewhere, that's going to be us. If uh. Uh, if you're in a factory that explodes, that's going to be us. Mostly wow. because uh, we're, we're really into that danger thing, and we'll fly where other people won't. Our helicopter is much bigger than everyone else's. Uh, one time, one of the civilian helicopters broke down somewhere, so mm. we actually had to fly. Like, we went over and picked the helicopter, like we actually like put the hoists onto the other helicopter and, and and picked up their patient and whatnot. So we we're gonna be doing uh, the you know the hoists things, anything you know involving like extricating people uh, with that tow line, um, and then uh, any sort of thing that happens on like a federal location. Mm. So say if you're like a one of the game wardens gets shot or something. He's a federal employee, so that's probably gonna be us. It's kind of weird. Up in the up in DC, they do, yeah. You know, the federal army helicopters do a lot more. Okay. Uh, down here, we do a lot of 
uh, hurricane responses, Hurricane Katrina, stuff like that. They start flooding. So it's kind of like an inland coast guard almost. Hey, yeah, that that's that's way perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's... yeah, because I know they the Coast Guard does a lot more stuff that's like really sketchy that you wouldn't want the normal police or any of that to maybe they wouldn't even be trained to because they got stuff like night vision and that kind of thing to be able to. Yeah, we've got we've got really cool tools that we like to play with. Can you I... land at MCV or? or... <laughs> no, we can't. Uh, yeah, because things... say where we it's called a pinnacle where we land one wheel onto the roof and then the rest of it is hanging off in midair and then we just jump off oh my patient. oh my it's, wow it's, kind of, it's a great way to have a heart attack i bet and you just see yeah you're up to 16 stories um because the pilot's yeah, technically we'll, flying still <laughs> yeah so the, the pilot's always flying anytime even when that as long as the the um, the propellers are spinning, it's uh, I'm gonna say that they're in control and they're flying it. Um, even if we're on, even if we're on the ground, uh, you so, man, helicopters are so weird. They do way more than you would ever think. That's so glad I'm not pilot. And that concludes part two of our five-part interview with Ed Edge. All of our episodes are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded March 24th, 2014. various things in part three of our five-part interview with Ed Edge. Enjoy. I guess I, I, I met you when you were doing uh, cute bikes and Christ cycles, um, and then you sold cute bikes, is that correct? Sold, yes, I sold cute bikes once we realized the cute bikes got huge. Mm-hmm. Um, Q bikes designed bike parts, and then we sold them to bike shops around the country. And then somehow, our biggest market was Vancouver, Canada, and France. And at that point, I realized that we're getting way bigger than I ever intended. Um, so I, I was up to, I was kind of over it at that point because it was more about managing this company than it was about the nonprofit. So then we had to really look at the nonprofit. And then we looked at the nonprofit and realized that, hey, we're, yeah, cool, over a 1,000 bikes, wonderful. How many of these people are riding them? Okay, cool. So, you know, not that many. <laughs> so you weren't fulfilling that second purpose. Right. So we you know, we never even realized that that was an issue until well after the game. So then we're just like, okay, cool, hey, we're going to close credit cycles. We'll sell cute because it's very appealing right now. It'll be easy to sell. Mm. Uh, and we'll go, I will see where where other needs are. And literally, a month later, I had another nonprofit. So. And what was that? I have Heart. Have Heart, oh, have Heart was probably my favorite company because we were able to link up in such a way that every single dollar uh, that I put into Have Heart went towards 
the initiative and not towards any, like, administrative things or rent or anything like that. So have Heart um, taught uh, fitness and nutrition classes in the public housing projects. So In Richmond? Yes. So I think there's, like, six public housing projects in Richmond, maybe even seven. And, I mean, total, they, they probably house, you know, 40,000, 50,000 people. So, a, you know, a quarter of the city's population lives well below the poverty level, well below the poverty level. Um, wow. I think the average income in, like, Wickham Court is $8,000 a year, which is... It's anyway, yeah. so these people can't afford a gym membership, but these people also have a high, uh, high incidence of, you know, heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, all that stuff. So it's a very unhealthy population, but it's also a very poor population. So... Uh, we're like, okay, cool, how are we going to help these people out? And so each of the public housing projects has a community center, a, a little building where they're supposed to, you know, have, like, after-school stuff for kids and whatnot. Yeah. They're, they're, they're largely not used. So we hooked up with the, the health department in the city, and we're like, hey, can we use these? Uh, we want to do fitness classes like boot camp classes for men or Zumba classes for women or Pilates and stuff like that. And they loved it. So within, like, a couple months, we had classes in all the public housing projects. I think the largest class that we had uh, had about, like, 120 people in it. And they're doing Zumba. So you see all these 120 very overweight women sweating for an hour and a half and loving it. And then coming back twice a week for months and months and months. And it was, man, that, that brought a tear to my eye, like... That company, within no time, fulfilled, fulfilled its role, fulfilled its mission at a very low cost because the city is actually doing our administrative stuff. Like, they would schedule the classes. So when people went to our classes, they thought they were going to a class done by the health department. Right. In fact, the health department was just scheduling it and doing the advertising for it, and then we would, my instructors would just show up. And so you're, were your instructors, like, on a volunteer basis? Absolutely not. I didn't want anyone feeling like they were getting second-rate service. So I was like, I want to provide classes that I would go to. I want to provide a class that I would pay for. I don't want I don't want volunteer instructors. I don't want student instructors. None of that. So uh, I went to people that are full-time elsewhere, like people that are full-time at Gold's Gym, at the Y, you know, so on and so forth. And I said, hey, would you mind taking on one additional class a week or two additional classes a week, so on. And uh, so then uh, we would find out what they were being paid, and then we would, like, go over their salary just a little bit so that they would kind of prioritize our classes and not be like, oh, hey, I can't I can't come today. You know, my kids got to go to practice or something like that. Yeah, that's amazing. And so how did you fund that? That was solely through myself. That was that was just initially the first year was just through uh, myself as a paramedic, but then it grew so quickly that I I said okay, I make just as a paramedic I make you know forty five thousand dollars a year. I can give thirty five thousand dollars a year away. So we ate the budget of thirty five thousand dollars up in like eight months. So then wow. I had to start RVA Vegan, which is a food truck company. Yeah. Make up, make up the additional funding. 
<laughs> Amazing. And do these classes cost anything to the uh, to the people that were taking them? No, absolutely not. The only cost I had was to pay the instructors whatever their cost was, 35 40 bucks an hour, and then the liability insurance for, you know, having people work out in case someone got injured. So every single dime was going towards the classes or the insurance, and the insurance was very cheap, so... When I've encountered things in a business situation before, it was usually whoever owned the building had to have the liability insurance. Does that... Well, say if you came to our class, right? you got injured because you overheated and then the face plant. Oh, okay. Because since you guys are actually doing physical activity like that... Right, right. So okay. It's, okay. It's not that you tripped. You're not going to sue the, the person that owns the building. It's that right. you were overexerting yourself at our direction. Right. Wow. I didn't even, I didn't think about that, but that totally makes sense. Okay. So you're making me, you're making me realize how much I've learned about business. <laughs> I generally tell people, and you can ask any of my employees, the the number one thing I say all the time is anytime someone has a question, I'm like, I don't know, I'm not that smart. That's my number one answer for, for life. Anytime someone has a question, I don't know, I'm not that smart. But just talking to you, it's made me realize how much I've learned over the last, you know, six, seven years of just owning stuff. Wow. That, well, that, uh, well, that's that's good, I guess. Yeah. Um, so you started RVA Vegan to fund these classes that you're doing. Um, and so RVA Vegan, that was the food truck, right? Right. Are you still running that? Yes. Um, in a much reduced capacity. Because now you got the burrito shop. Right. So um, we we had one RV vegan food cart and then Half Heart kept growing. So then we had two RV vegan food carts and Half Heart kept growing. Next thing you know, we had four RV vegan food carts. And one, one of them was a bus. And that was, that was at the pinnacle of Half Heart's um, height when we had you know, tons of classes going on every week. Uh, we just needed a lot of a lot of money to pay that. Um, but then uh, Half Heart went by the wayside, uh, and then because I had to leave for the army for like nine months, and so when I got back, then we're in this present time where I'm starting a new company for another nonprofit. So okay. I, I I am very sad that Half Heart went by the wayside but it only did because I left for so long. You're, so you're actual, are you a soldier? Are you a citizen? Or So I am I am a uh, flight paramedic for the, the United States Army, uh, and that means that aside from my duties here, stateside, I also have duties elsewhere in the world that you don't ever hear me talking about because uh, I'm just, I, I've kind of, hate the fact that I have any association with the military, but um, I, I kind of have some sort of respite from it because, or not me respite, but reassurance because whatever I do here stateside is exactly what I do when I'm overseas. I'm a paramedic on, an, on a helicopter for anyone. We'll transport, if a dog gets shot, we'll, we'll transport him. If you know the bad guy gets shot, we'll transport him. The good guy gets shot, whoever that is, transport that person too, so... Regardless of whoever gets shot, they're on my helicopter. So you joined up about a year ago? Uh, 
say a couple years. A couple years, and and so you uh, had to go through the boot camp and all that. <laughs> yeah, being um, vegan in, in boot camp just means that you have to eat, um, you have to eat peanut butter and iceberg lettuce for three months. Uh, wow, that sounds it, like not a lot. <laughs> man, my my digestive system hates me. Yeah, uh, but it's it's good. I mean, now now they take care of me, but uh, in boot camp. Uh, uh, no one's no one's looking after you. So you're glad to be I over am, that and actually on am, the helicopter, huh? <laughs> I am so glad to be over that, and that's that was that was the defiant. Like every single day, I was sitting there with a spoon in my mouth, uh, with you know, a sandpaper dry tongue. I just had to think about poor people and why I was doing this because I love poor people, um, and this was was going to pay my way to help them. So. And that concludes part three of our five-part interview with Ed Edge. You can find all of our episodes at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded March 24th, 2014. four of our five-part interview with Ed Edge. Enjoy. So, did, did you ever go to college or anything like that? Uh, I went for, very briefly, very briefly I went to DTU for, like, nutrition. Mm. Um, the bad thing about owning nonprofits is that there's a dollar amount associated with everything. So um, we do a lot of feedings with RVA Vegan. We do a lot of like home, feeding for the homeless. And I know that for $13, I can feed 34 people. And this is just donated? Like you guys just, just give it for free? Yeah, we, we you'll see the pink bus over at Monroe Park, or you'll see the pink bus over at the the, the shelter. Okay. You know, serving food. You wow. Know, no transaction whatsoever. I had no idea y'all did that. That's amazing. I know for $13, I can feed 34 people. So me going to school was costing thousands of dollars, and I couldn't I couldn't justify that in the grand scheme of things. It's like, you know, why, why am I going to school? You know, why am I taking this money from the good things it could be doing? Um, and I just, I couldn't. I couldn't explain that. I couldn't reason that. Yeah, um, well, it's it's. A, yeah, I think most, especially this day and age, for most people, it's a it, it's a gamble, and and you're hedging on some future payout. And with you having this uh, mechanism of your own self uh, um, determination and stuff, it I can I can definitely see where that that gamble. It, I'm a strong believer in real money. I yeah. do everything I can possibly do with real money. I've never taken a loan out for anything. Um, I've never, you know, borrowed money, so to speak, or anything like that. And this way, uh, I know that, like, typically when it's my own money, I know that 
I had to, I was elbow deep in someone's blood for that, those, you know, for that paycheck. So I know that I'm going to spend that money very, you know, usefully and not, not wastefully. It's an interesting thing that happens here because when the way you're living your life, when someone needs help, you're able to help them. And then because of you being able to help them, you're actually able to help more people. That that is really amazing. You know, a lot of people that start these businesses, they and they and they come into what they would qualify as a wealthy life, something that they can be proud of. It usually involves fucking someone over, you know. <laughs> but you're like actually in this position where because of helping people, you're actually able to help more. It's like you're a it's like a help multiplier or something. <laughs> That is, it's amazing that you pointed that out. It took me a while to realize that because I was always like, hey, my friends are really rich and I'm very, like, I'm I'm not. And uh, my friend, uh, you know, manages rich people's money uh, and I save lives. And so, like, I saw this big, uh, there was a, a couple of years where I felt things were really unfair. But uh, I've I since gotten over that and realized that, hey, uh, you know, I, I've got to sleep at night. I'm doing what's helping me sleep at night. I'm doing what, yeah, my heart is drawn to, and that's all you got to worry about. What age were you when you realized that the world was a place that needed help? So that man, great question. I grew up Tibetan Buddhist, and so from I mean, age nine, uh, I knew that I am not that important. I I have shelter. I have food, uh, and I'm not living in fear. So granted, those three things, I should be happy. If I'm not happy, then that's the inner thing that I need to fix. But I've got the basic necessities, so my whole life should not be focusing on getting more, but should be able be focusing on making sure that everyone else is happy. And so that I can't, I'd say, even at nine, I remember crying over seeing, you know, homeless people, so... Yeah, I had a very similar experience. Uh, we were, my family was going somewhere on Thanksgiving, and uh, we stopped and gave this homeless man one of our pies that we were taking down to my grandmother's. And I remember like something flipping in me and being like, all of a sudden, I was kind of disgusted by knowing the help. That, to another person that each one of these things that we were carrying in our car could make. I, right. I think, I think it kind of made me question like the distribution of resources at that point, you know, cause we're sitting here with like four pies, this one pie made a person's day, you know? Right. You know, and so that, uh, that goes back to knowing the actual cost of things. So like literally, uh, I, I have to give credit to my girlfriend because she puts up with this, but every single purchase I have goes back to, uh, you know, $13 can feed 34 people. So, uh, my shoes are $5, you know, my, uh, everything else, uh, is just at the, the bare minimum. Um, yeah, I've got, I've been wearing the same shorts since like middle school. So it's, it's, uh, everything is, is at its bare minimum. So that's, uh, that, that cost basis is not being affected. Do you have, do you have like internet? No, I don't. I don't have internet. I don't have a computer. I don't have a key. 
I have, wow. I have two two bikes and a duffel bag full of clothes. I, I know at a certain point in time, um, you had to feel, and and you kind of alluded to it before, but 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 you had to sort of feel maybe some kind of alienation because of this, because I understand that um, this is something that's very dear to you. And so there's a certain ethical or moral compass in you that says, this is what I need to do. How did that make, did it make it hard for you in, in, in fitting in with other people, especially in a society where so many people live with excess and that kind of thing? Did that cause a, um, you are, you are hitting so close to home. It's scary. (laughs) So, uh, the truthful thing, I had a very depressing uh, childhood because I was alone. Uh, for the simple fact that I couldn't connect with people. Um, I couldn't connect on video games. I couldn't connect on playing sports. I couldn't connect any of those things other than, like, you know, loving animals and, and, and being outside and, and, and loving people and trying to help them, even at, like, you know, elementary school age. So... It, yes, I think that that sums up my my entire uh, uh, growing up experience was just fairly fairly uh, singled out and alienated. And and what age were you when you you could actually well you could accept this this quality as something that you could be proud of rather than or, or were you always proud of it? But without the comparison, because I know that I, I just know growing up, like there's that con- that continuum that you're in where you you get to a certain point and And even if you're doing like amazing things or things that seem amazing to you and things that you're very proud of in yourself, you'll still kind of compare to others. And, and I'd say I, I would say was until 22, 22. <laughs> and what was that moment? So six years ago, did I realize that I don't have to. I don't have to, uh, you know, try to fit in. I don't have to, uh, it's okay that I don't have friends because this, this greater mission of pain for people suffering and need to help them is way more important than my social life. So it's, it stinks because I see other people have so much more. So many people have friends, so many people have like booming lives and they own stuff that they like and they enjoy their lives so much, but that's, that's never going to be me. Once you gain knowledge of something, like if you gain knowledge that if you, uh, you know, sniff ammonia, you're, it's going to blow a blood vessel in your head. You're right. not going to do that anymore. <laughs> right. So uh, I have the knowledge that people are literally suffering and they, they need immediate need. Uh, and sometimes I'm fulfilling that, sometimes I'm not. But... Uh, my goal is to, you know, alleviate that suffering as much as humanly possible with whatever means I can. Um, and at the end of the day, I, <laughs> I have that knowledge. So anytime I spend outside of that mission, mm. I, it's, it doesn't come without, you know, great thoughts in, in, inwardly. And so, like, if I hang out with my girlfriend on, on a Friday night as opposed to hang out in a soup kitchen, I'm not going to sleep that well. It sucks. She hates it, and I hate dealing with it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a need. I've been exposed to it, and with that knowledge, 
my whole existence is being dedicated to it. So it's, I know it, it seems like a tireless work, and it is because there's always a need, but once you're exposed to it, it's really hard to, to get away from it. So a thing I'd love to ask you is um, you grew up Buddhist, and you became a Christian. Is that correct? I did become a Christian um, after uh, a very long time of being Buddhist. I became a Christian at like 20, 21 maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd say the only difference between myself then and, and like after the conversion is that I was able to sleep on a mattress. Really? <laughs> I think that's the only difference in how uh, my mind is and and how my time is spent and all that jazz. And, and what was different that made the mattress easier too? Well, in, in Buddhism, you know, we're just not allowed to sleep on mattresses. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. So, uh, and in uh, Christianity, they don't really even have a qualm with mattresses. <laughs> and that was... Um, and so that, that's, that was literally the only difference. You know, uh, living as selflessly as humanly possible is still the number one goal in both religions. Um, so, if, if you despite don't, how other people might portray that, <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they're how other people portray that. It's still the number one goal, right? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. I've, I've I've dabbled in both, and they're definitely a lot of similar. It's a similar aim. Um, did you have some kind of uh, divine experience that that uh, made oh, you man. want to become Christian, or? Uh so I've in I mean in seven years I've never been able to summarize this this conversion in anything less than a two hour story. Okay. But I'll 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 tell you I spent uh I got to a point in my life where I was spending more time convincing myself God didn't exist than trying to convince myself he did. So that's oh, wow. that much crap I can't. It's just like that whole thing with the knowledge. Once, once you you've been blessed with some sort of knowledge, you you, you have you come to a point where you know, where are you going to do with that knowledge? Either you try to go on living denying it, or you go on accepting it. So, yeah. Once once you read um, some of Newton's laws of physics, what are you going to do with that? You can't still deny them, or are you going to accept them? Uh, so yeah. Once once I got to that point. I had to come to the same conclusion. And that concludes part four of our five-part interview with Ed Edge. You can find all of our episodes at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded March 24th, 2014. things in our five-part interview with Ed Edge. This is part five. Enjoy.
so right now you've got the um, what is the the taco place okay, called? So I've got uh, a restaurant called Cafe Verde. Cafe Verde. Okay. I've got the food truck called RBA Vegan. The food truck is just pretty much doing uh, large events this year. We're not doing the small food truck courts or anything small like that. Pretty much just doing you know large festivals. Um, and so the goal of Cafe Verde, the sole purpose Cafe Verde exists, is because myself and a couple doctors are starting a kind of like an urgent care clinic, like a patient first. For okay. People. Wow. So, Here in Richmond? Yes. Um, so the it's going to be called Richmond Street Medicine, and uh, these all the whatever profits are made from Cafe Verde are going directly towards that, and towards uh, feeding programs that we do, you know, once twice a week for uh, the homeless. So it's a clinic that is going to um, provide medicine. Is there going to be any f- charge to 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 the um to the people coming in for for medical help? No, free of charge. How are you? F- no, and no, this is going to be no funded. Changes at all. And this is going to be funded by the cafe. It'll be funded by a lot of different sources. This is the first time that I am not the sole person on a nonprofit. So there's a little bit of anxiety on on my end, but I realize that this is a much bigger thing than I can. This is a much bigger task than I can undertake. So that's why I've got some really great partners um, that happen to be doctors uh, and have a lot more pull than I do, a lot more connections than I do. So the cafe will be one of the funding sources. You know, some grants. Uh, you know, the the teaching hospital has a vested interest in in helping with uh, the primary care of of the homeless because uh, when the homeless gets sick. On these run-of-the-mill things like the flu or a stomach bug or something like that, they go they tie up the ER. These so, ERs are expensive, so. Well, cool. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Is there any topic that you would like to discuss on this that maybe? No, I. Man, if there's one thing I like, to, so I have a talk that I give quite often. Like schools and organizations ask me to do lectures, and I give the same talk. It's called "Do Something." Uh-huh. And it's basically uh, just outlining how easy it is to make a profound change and how simple it can be done and how quickly it can be done. Um, because people people see needs all the time. And I know in my general, you know, life of just running around town, I, I every month I'm open to a new need or I'm exposed to a new need. And so I, I assume that everyone else is too. I know some people have blinders on, but you can't go your whole life and not be exposed to some need that's greater than you. Yeah. So with that, I, I show people like the very quick, down, dirty, easy way to, to to take care of some problems if they're ever exposed to it, as opposed to just saying, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be great if there's an organization that, you know, fed the homeless? <laughs> like, how easy is that? That's so easy. Or how... Yeah, you know, it would be great if there's a organization that taught fitness classes in the public housing projects. That's that's super easy. Um, but it's not to guilt people. Yeah, don't have their own lives. I know that you know people grew up in America, and that's not really 
a value that's taught growing up, so it's kind of a new concept. So I understand where people are coming from, but it's uh, that's that that's my whole that's my, like my second reason for existing nowadays is to get people to that are much more uh, fortunate than I am, you know, financially to 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 give even a small. Uh, even in like a small way, because if everyone gives in a small way, then you know it'll equal exponentially greater than what people are doing now, which is generally nothing. Well, you know, that, I think <clears throat> I think that's probably one of the biggest problems I've run into is the lack of belief in people's abilities, personal abilities in their own lives. And I, I, I think a little bit comes from the schooling that we get. A lot of us are taught, like I can't, like I was talking to a friend the other night about how many people I know that when they talk about death metal, they're like linguist, linguistic anthropologists, but they've been told that they're idiots. And so they never really apply themselves except for things that they're very passionate about. And so they might go their whole lives and not really realize that, Hey, you know, you've got this, amazing brain on you, but just because of the society you exist in, you've kind of been taught that it, you know, it's not for, for use because you didn't score well on your SAT or your teacher kind of didn't look at you the way that maybe they should because you're wearing a black t-shirt with a metal band on it, you know? Um, but, but one of the things I like the whole point of this actual interview show that I've been doing is I've noticed the trend in the United States to try and iconify people that are doing interesting things. And so like when you look back at the civil rights movement or something like that, we think, Oh, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, like those are the only two people that ever did anything. And my goal was to show the people I know around me in this community that are doing amazing things, but because of our focus is on capital as a point of success, and our focuses on um, other other things like that that are more culturally accepted that you might not really ever get to hear these people's narratives because I I think what you're ending up finding out is that hey you know what it's like this quote by Brian Eno that uh, beautiful things come from shit and 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 kind of unpromising beginnings and he, he kind of says uh, you know well I'm kind of an unpromising beginning so something could come from me you know like kind of looking at this thing of like the chaos and realizing that, um, you know, beautiful things can come from anywhere. So I, my hope is that when people listen to these things, they'll, they'll get, um, maybe reminded of a, a possibly an earlier time in their life when, um, they had a little more, uh, hope and, and seeing people like you do these kinds of things, um, you know, they're going to connect with something human. That, that is coming across and say, you know what, I feel exactly the same way. So what's the difference? And, and really it's going to come down to, well, you know, Ed is, is making some sacrifices that, you know, maybe I wouldn't mind making too, you know? And, um, and then boom, you got a really, uh, uh, engaged, uh, public. And yeah, I mean, that's ultimately my goal, but I don't, <laughs> some people might just think it's an interview show, but, um, the, the the capstone to my my lecture is this. I, I shouldn't be the exception. Ed Edge is not special in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I'm very non-special in the, the grand scheme of things is the way society sees me. 
is because I'm very poor. I'm yeah. very, very poor. Uh, uh, and I don't say that as like a privileged, like I, I hear my friends, you know, a privileged American, like, oh man, I, uh, I only make this much. I'm poor, no, but you have a TV and, you know, internet and whatnot. I'm poor because I live off $150 a week. Um, but yet I, yet, you know, I've, I've owned eight nonprofits and we've helped, you know, you know thousands and thousands of people. I shouldn't be the exception because every single person I know is well, way more financially stable than I am. Every person I know has way more free time than I do. There should be nothing special about me. Everyone should be, you know, doing, you know, way more. If I can feed 300 people a week, well, goodness, my friend that just got a job over at the Martin agency should be feeding a thousand people a week. So, uh, and that's that's the, the the point I like to drive home. Um, is that if yeah if, if I can you know give up a few things, and uh, people call me extreme, so you don't have to you don't have to come to my level. But if you know just think if you look at your 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 weekly time schedule and see how much time you spend on Facebook and and looking at you know HBO, <laughs> you'd be like you know just an hour and a half of that time could be spent radically changing someone else's life. It doesn't have to be a thousand people. It could just be mentoring one person. But, you know, it's so easy to change, to, to, to you know, be part of the change. And it's it's just ridiculous how, how people are so hesitant to or so refusing to, to give up their HBO time. So, anyway, that's that, that's usually the, the capstone to the the lecture is just that I should, I'm not special. I shouldn't be the exception. There's no reason why, you know, there should be an article on Ed Edge every couple months in the, in the paper. There is. I'm very thankful that people are, you know, are writing about that, but they shouldn't be. <laughs> this, this should be so, so normal. This should, this should be the norm. This should be, the, this should be the norm that I, there shouldn't be, you know, nine articles on me in two months. Yeah. I feel the so. same way about veganism. <laughs> like I'm, I'm usually <laughs> reluctant to use the term because I don't want to set myself as an outlier, you know, cause I'm like, <laughs> no, living ethically and morally in terms of like human species should be the norm, you know, <laughs> like uh, yeah, not being an a-hole to the world around you should be the norm. Yeah. yeah I get you on that. Like we don't have a term for non-murderer, you know, like we have a term right, right. for murderer. So that that's working right, but not in, in terms of when it comes to food for some reason. So, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ed, for talking. And, and if if someone wanted to uh, attend one of these, um, is it just the, these uh, speaking things? Is it just for schools, or or, or can can not, older people come in? I I don't actually schedule them. They just happen. They come to me. Literally, I'll get an email. You know, like, hey. Uh, a friend of mine was at one of your previous lectures and we want you to do one for our organization. To, so they happen, you know, every, at least every other month I'm doing a, a lecture somewhere. There's really no consistency. Sometimes it's for a school, sometimes it's for a, uh, a nonprofit or, or some conference or something, but uh, I wish they would stop happening. I wish, again, people would just get the idea. Like, oh, doing something, it's easy. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> well, great. Yeah, I think that's a 
yeah, <laughs> I wish that would be an amazing society. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. Ed. No problem. No problem. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. All right, man. Well, you take care. Hey, ciao. All right. Bye. And that concludes our interview with Ed Edge. You can find all of our episodes at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded March 24th, 2014.